Under oath, Lawmakers Grill Special Counsel Robert Mueller about his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Catholic nominee, the Senate votes on a judicial candidate questioned over his membership in the Knights of Columbus. A new leader, Boris Johnson takes over as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, what he's saying about Brexit. And concerns over technology, a priest and philosophy professor tells us about his new book on artificial intelligence. On EWTN News Nightly for Wednesday, July 24th, 2019. Good evening from Washington, D.C., and thank you for joining us for News from a Catholic Perspective. I'm Wyatt Goolsby. Robert Mueller says his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election was not a witch hunt. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill spent hours grilling the former special counsel, but Republicans and Democrats still don't agree on the implications for President Donald Trump. White House correspondent Mark Irons reports. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Wyatt. Former special counsel Robert Mueller repeatedly referred back to his nearly 450-page report as he answered questions from Congress today. When that report was first released, President Trump said it totally exonerated him. Today, we heard a different story from the author. Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. With one-word responses, former special counsel Robert Mueller batted down President Trump's claim that he's completely cleared of wrongdoing. You could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office. Yes. Mueller's written report documented possible instances where President Trump tried to obstruct the investigation. Democrats keyed in. Your investigation found that President Trump directed White House counsel Don McGahn to fire you. Isn't that correct? True. Republicans push back. At any time of the investigation, was your investigation curtailed or, curtailed or stopped or hindered? No. And a muted Robert Mueller constantly referred back to his written report. It says Russian interference in the 2016 election was sweeping and systematic, but found no criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia. And I uh, would direct you to the report itself. Again, I uh, send you the report based on what is written in the report. Mueller was more outspoken today as Republicans alleged he compiled a team of investigators motivated by support for the Democratic Party. I have not had occasion once to ask somebody about their political affiliation. It is not done. What I care about is the capability of the individual to do the job and do the job quickly and seriously and with integrity. Republicans also interested in the origins of the report itself and how it was impacted by an unverified dossier with allegations against the president. How long did it take you to, to reach the conclusion that it was unverified? I'm not going to speak to that. I am asking you directly, did any members of your team or did you interview Christopher Steele in the course of your investigation? And I am not going to answer that question, sir. Among Mueller's unanswered questions, would he explicitly refer the president for impeachment? I'm not going to talk uh, about, that, uh, uh, about th that issue. President Trump responding on Twitter, no collusion, no obstruction. It is up to Congress to decide if President Trump should be impeached for obstruction. Republicans are opposed, and Democratic efforts thus far have fallen short, even though they control the House of Representatives. Why? White House correspondent Mark Irons reporting. Thanks, Mark. Joining me now is Ken Klukowski, senior fellow at the American Civil Rights Union, a conservative organization dedicated to defending the Constitution and traditional moral values. Ken, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks, Wyatt. Going into today's hearing, former special counsel Robert Mueller was being criticized as being a reluctant witness. 
Some analysts today have even said his testimony is uneven. What did you think about what he had to say today? Well, I think today showed what a circus this has become. This has become beyond absurd. Uh, despite having uh, retained a crew that everyone acknowledges now was dominated by partisan Democrat investigators who are also brilliant attorneys. If anyone has the skill set and the motivation to go after the president, it was these people. Yet when they did that, even they had to admit that, first of all, there were no crimes related to collusion. Collusion is not a crime. The Democrats used that talking point. But whether it's conspiracy or anything else, that they found no case for any of those crimes. And then they go off on this thing regarding obstruction of justice, but admit they can't make a case for obstruction either, despite the fact that, again, there were investigators who were clearly trying to make that. So at, at this point, it looks like the American people, I think, have said that They've had quite enough and are ready to move on. And I think that's the impression that people that people got from today. This was not a, a good day for people who were trying to make a case against the president. His appearance today, Mueller's, was being billed as a pivotal moment for Democrats calling for President Trump's impeachment. Did any of this move the needle on that in any way? Well, the reality is that impeachment is a political process. Someone could say that wearing an ugly tie is a high crime or misdemeanor and can impeach. I mean, there's no judicial role in that. So whatever a majority of the House says is an impeachable crime, uh, they can say it. It doesn't make it true. Of course, then it goes over to the Senate, where you would need a two-thirds supermajority vote for it. So a whole bunch of Republicans to join every single Democrat to say that someone should be removed from office. And I think everyone knows that's just not going to happen. What it would show, I think, is how out of step with middle-of-the-road voters this whole, again, circus has become. Well, let's talk about ordinary citizens then, because do you think Mueller's testimony will have an impact on the public perception of President Trump. Uh, I think that the, the poll numbers of Americans who think that this issue has been investigated to death and that there's just no crime, no underlying crime there, I would think that that number would actually go up uh, after today. It's the, the, this, was, this was set up to try and make the case against the president by hyperpartisan Democrats, and, uh, and they failed miserably uh, in that regard. So I think people on the hard left base who just don't like the president, sure, they're going to say, aha, aha, but it's, it's nothing they weren't saying to begin with. I think for reasonable voters in the middle who were saying, okay, let's hear from the guy. Let's hear what he has to say. I think what you get there is that Rod Rosenstein, who was the number two at Justice and who was in charge of Mueller and who is most certainly not part of the conservative wing of the Republican Party we've all seen, uh, when the Attorney General Bob Bar uh, Bill Barr gave his uh, report, uh, he said it, it was clear that both the AG and Mr. Rosenstein both said independently that they would not bring, that they would never bring obstruction charges on what was presented in that report. So I think at this point it's clear that there's just not a case to be made there. It's not a legal case. This is all just about partisan politics now. And, and nevertheless, I'm sure we'll be hearing about it more as we move into an election year uh, in the next year. King Klukowski, senior fellow at the American Civil Rights Union. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Wyatt. God bless. The Senate confirms a Catholic judicial nominee once questioned for his membership in the Knights of Columbus. President Trump nominated Brian Bisher in November. He'll now take his seat on the federal district court in Nebraska. Capitol Hill correspondent Jason Calvey brings us the story. Jason? Wyatt, the Senate confirmed this Catholic lawyer with a vote of 51 to 40. But in December, two Democrats grilled him over his membership in the Knights of Columbus. 
Today, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell makes fun of those questions. The nominee is a practicing Catholic. My goodness. The Senate Majority Leader mocks Democrats. In December, Senator Mazie Hirano asked Catholic nominee Brian Bisher, the Knights of Columbus has taken a number of extreme positions. She mentions marriage. If confirmed, do you intend to end your membership with this organization to avoid any appearance of bias? Bisher responded, if confirmed, I will abide by the code of conduct of United States judges. Presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris also probed, were you aware that the Knights of Columbus opposed a woman's right to choose when you joined the organization? Those questions led the Senate in January to unanimously pass Senator Ben Sasse's resolution. It says it's unconstitutional to reject a nominee because they're in the Knights of Columbus. Last week, he spoke with EWTN's Catherine Hadro. Um, this is not some nefarious, scary organization. This is about people living a life of gratitude to God by trying to love their neighbor and their local community. And you have Democrats that are wanting to politicize religion and say, if you're a member of this organization that, oh, by the way, also happens to be pro-life because they believe in the dignity of everybody, we're going to ask you questions about it like you might belong to some communist organization. Senator Hirano said the resolution was siding with the alt-right adding it's unnecessary because no religious test is being applied to nominees for federal office. Today, the majority leader defended the Knights. We, we all know the Knights, a noted worldwide extremist sect of Catholics. There's about two million men strong, known among other things for their love of their Catholic faith, their unparalleled commitment to charitable work, and for hosting barbecues and pancake breakfasts. Outrageous. And the Knights of Columbus support this newscast. Spokesman Joseph Cullen tells me he's glad that Bisher's confirmation once again reaffirms there's no religious test to be put on those nominated for public service. Wyatt? Capitol Hill correspondent Jason Calvi reporting. Thanks, Jason. Boris Johnson officially becomes the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. Johnson says he intends to lead Britain out of the European Union by the end of October. He is the former mayor of London and British Foreign Secretary. He replaces Theresa May, who resigned last month. Lawmakers repeatedly rejected her plan for Brexit. One of the churches damaged in the Easter Sunday terror attack in Sri Lanka has been re-consecrated. St. Sebastian's Church was targeted in the bombings across the country last April. The strike killed more than 250 people. Cardinal Malcolm Ranjith performed the rededication ceremony on Sunday. He also again accused government officials of failing to listen to warnings prior to the terror attack. And in the Philippines, a cathedral reopens its doors six months after a deadly terror attack. At least 20 people were killed after two bombs exploded in the Cathedral of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Coming up, analysis on the pro-life protections in the bipartisan budget proposal. Welcome back. On the heels of this week's budget deal between congressional leaders and the White House, the leader of the Senate's pro-life caucus lends his support to President Trump by refusing any attempts to undermine or strip pro-life measures from future spending bills. In a letter being circulated to fellow lawmakers, Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana tells the president, quote, as members of the pro-life majority in the United States Senate, we will join you in rejecting any poison pills, additional new riders, or other changes in policy or conventions that allow for higher spending levels 
or any non-appropriations measures that would undermine federal pro-life policy. Joining me now is Matt Hadro, senior DC correspondent for Catholic News Agency. Matt, welcome in. Explain what poison pills are and how they're used on Capitol Hill. Why poison pills are, it's a term that is commonly used to refer to controversial amendments that are inserted into what is otherwise widely agreeable legislation. Um, and in an attempt to force opponents of the amendments to either vote for them or to vote against the legislation and have to explain why. Okay, so then thinking about that and thinking about this potential budget, what are just some of the pro-life protections that are at risk? So in the letter sent by Senator Daines to President Trump, uh, it outlines a few pro-life policy priorities, most notable of which is the Hyde Amendment. That's a longstanding bipartisan federal policy that protects against taxpayer funding of abortions, except in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother. Some of the other um, related protections against taxpayer funding of abortion include the Dornan Amendment, which applies to congressional funding of Washington, D.C., as well as the Mexico City policy, which applies to international assistance, and uh, Title X family planning grants as well. So what then do you make about the timing of this letter? Why was it so important that he sends a message to President Trump now? So in recent months, there's been a pro-abortion majority in the House that's been very active. There was an effort by several members of the House in June to insert an amendment overturning the Hyde Amendment in a appropriations bill. That amendment was pulled because of concerns that the bill would not pass the Senate. Uh, so Senator Daines wanted President Trump in the recent negotiations over raising the debt ceiling to stand strong, draw a line in the sand, and make it clear that he would not be signing into law any bill that comes to his desk in the next two years that includes a pro-abortion poison pill rider. What do you, we don't often hear about the pro-life caucus in Congress. How influential are they, and are they in line with the pro-life policies that the president wants? Sure. So there's the House Pro-Life Caucus, which has been in existence since 1981, but the Senate Pro-Life Caucus is brand new. It was just introduced this year, announced at the March for Life. And the real importance here is that now that you have an ex a specific advocate in the House and the Senate advocating for pro-life policies and being on the lookout to make sure that there are no attempts to undermine or overturn existing pro-life policies. And so um, now, you know, now you have Senator Steve Daines, Republican from Montana, who is chairing the Senate Pro-Life Caucus. Well, it's so interesting to hear about those pro-life efforts because so often we get, at least in the mainstream media, more about the abortion side of things. Matt Hadro, senior D.C. correspondent for Catholic News Agency. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Wyatt. Up next, a pro-life group in Michigan tries to end a second trimester abortion procedure. And a Catholic priest tells us about his book, on artificial intelligence. Welcome back. Pro-abortion groups in Georgia are trying to stop the state's heartbeat law from taking effect. Lawyers with the ACLU and Planned Parenthood are asking a judge to temporarily stop the law while their legal challenge plays out. It's set to go into effect January 1st. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp said he thought the law likely would face legal challenges, but he says the state will not back down. And in Arkansas, a federal judge blocked three new pro-life laws minutes before they were set to take effect. The judge granted a 14-day temporary restraining order late last night. The legislation may have forced the state's only surgical abortion clinic to close.
The Michigan Catholic Conference calls on residents in the state to say no to dismemberment abortions by supporting a petition drive to ban them. According to data from the pro-life group Michigan Values Life, there were more than 1,900 dismemberment or dilation and evacuation abortions performed in the state last year. That's more than five per day, every day. Joining me now by Skype from Lansing, Michigan, is Rebecca Masti, policy advocate for the Michigan Catholic Conference. Rebecca, welcome into the broadcast. Just saying the term dismemberment abortion is disturbing. At what stage in a pregnancy are these types of abortions typically done? Dismemberment abortions are typically done during the second trimester of pregnancy. So they are a later term abortion. And this is between 13 and 24 weeks of gestation. Okay, so we've got this petition going in the state. Specifically, what would this ban on dismemberment abortions do? What it would do is it modifies our existing statute, which already bans partial birth abortion, to simply add uh, a ban on dismemberment abortion as well. So it would say that um, uh, this procedure is no longer a possibility in Michigan on living uh, fetuses. And at the same time that you have this petition drive going, there's another competing petition drive that's seeking to ban abortion after a baby's heartbeat is detected. Why is your group, the Michigan Catholic Conference, supporting the initiative to ban dismemberment abortions instead? Well, that's a good question. The Michigan Catholic Conference and the, and the bishops have determined that they are unable to support the Michigan Heartbeat Initiative um, for a unique reason, and that is because this uh, heartbeat initiative could actually negatively impact a long-standing law that we already have, which bans all abortions. So in Michigan, uh, we're unique to compared to uh, um, all the other states in that we have a pre-row ban, um, which already bans all abortions from the, the moment of conception. So there's ethical and moral and uh, legal concerns about a Michigan heartbeat initiative in that it could uh, allow for abortion up to a heartbeat uh, being detected, whereas our existing law bans all abortions. Well, Michigan's governor, a Democrat, has vowed to veto any pro-life legislation. How does this approach of a petition get around that, or does it? It does get around it, and we're very excited for this opportunity. Um, in Michigan law, there is an opportunity for citizens to actually initiate, initiate legislation, and they do that by um, getting signatures. We need a, a little over uh, or around 350,000 signatures um, of Michigan voters. And once those uh, signatures are gathered uh, and submitted and verified by the Secretary of State, the legislation will then go to the um, State House and Senate to be approved. Uh, currently, we have um, legislation, House bill and Senate bill, on the dismemberment petition that have already been approved. And so we're very uh, hopeful that the legislature, once we get enough signatures, will approve this uh, petition drive as well. Okay, very good. We'll continue to follow this and best of luck on the petition drive. It is a very important one. Rebecca Masti, policy advocate for the Michigan Catholic Conference. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Finally tonight, a Catholic priest and philosophy professor is voicing his concern about emerging technology, specifically artificial intelligence. Father Philip Larey, the author of the new book, Artificial Humanity, an essay on the philosophy of artificial intelligence, says humans should not bow to technology, but that the human person should be kept at the center of all technological improvements. And Father Larey joins us now. He teaches philosophy at the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. 
Father, welcome back to the broadcast. In your new book, you discuss the philosophical aspect of artificial intelligence. Now, when we think about AI, we typically think about Hollywood movies with robots or supercomputers controlling everything we do. Bring us back down to earth. How do you define artificial intelligence? We can define artificial intelligence as a set of algorithms which use logical calculations in order to achieve goals. These goals are usually set by programmers so that uh, software uh, actually can do something. What we're seeing now is the development of uh, a rather primitive idea of artificial intelligence which is increasingly evolving and getting better and better and we're seeing the effects in society. Uh, we have uh, programs like AlphaZero which is DeepMind's uh, project uh, owned by Google. Uh, we also have IBM's uh, Watson project, which is very successful at diagnosing medical uh, ailments in New York. Uh, Facebook and Microsoft, every, everyone has uh, an AI project, and so it's becoming uh, an increasingly interesting subject to talk about. What do you think are the spiritual implications as AI develops and becomes more advanced? What do we need to keep in mind? Right now, the technology is in its initial stages. So I think uh, in terms of the spiritual dimensions that can be in, impacted by this, we're still at the beginning. There is talk about uh, transhumanist uh, ideas, and we have different fields, different camps, talking about uh, immortality. Can, can we live long enough to live forever? They're talking about uh, death. They're talking about the afterlife and, of course, the soul. These are all philosophical entities that the rich tradition of the Catholic Church can respond to. And I think that the reason I wrote the book is, and I state this in the introduction, is to invite a dialogue between thinkers in the Catholic Church and those that are developing artificial intelligence. There are many people that are weighing in on, on the spiritual aspects of these technologies, not just AI, but also emerging technologies, so that we keep the dignity of the human person in the center. And I think Pope Francis is a leader in this. He's insisting that as we embrace these technologies, as they become even part of us in an intimate way, we have to retain that what is uniquely human. This is, I think, the roadmap that the Catholic Church is identifying for these technologies. And that can be a challenge, Father, as you know, because one leading AI expert says 40% of the world's jobs will be replaced by robots in the next 15 to 20 years. If that's true, how do we adapt to such rapid change in our society? We have to adapt. Although I do think it's important to make a distinction between tasks and jobs. AI is going to replace many tasks that people are doing in their jobs, but they're not necessarily going to replace the job. This is an important distinction that one of the leaders at McKinsey uh, is identifying and is assisting upon. At the same time, certain jobs which are very repeatable and controllable by machines are, are, are going to be uh, lost. So uh, we have to, uh, right now, think about the options down the line. Uh, I think that uh, instead of training to, to go into a job that's probably going to be taken over by machines or AI, we should start forming ourselves so that we will be able to enter the market, the, the, the job market, with uniquely human tasks that machines can't do. That, those are going to be uh, well-paid jobs and highly required, even from the tech industry. 
with such an important and fascinating subject matter and so vital that we continue to think about the human person philosophically and from a Catholic perspective in all of this. Father Philip Loray, author of Artificial Humanity, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Wet. And with that, we conclude our newscast for tonight. We thank you for watching. For the entire EWTN News Nightly team, I'm Wyatt Goolsby. We'll be back tomorrow with more news from a Catholic perspective. Good night and God bless.